well, hey, let's let's go ahead and kind of circle back into this. Um, we're going to jump into Matthew. Um, so what this will feel like, you will probably hear a number of items here and think, oh my goodness, I don't think I would have ever thought through some of these things. This is the background to Matthew. So in other words, where did Matthew come from? Before we dive into that, let's, I, I will do this almost every class. Let's just kind of sit back and think through ministry. Let's think back um, and kind of think through uh, what's next for us, right? What's, how, do we, how do we minister well to the church? Um, I, I told you this last week. Um, I'll have kind of two tracks, two kinds of comments all the way through. Some will be related to scholarship in case those here are wanting that kind of route. Others, I will have comments related to ministry. How can we do this, this type of stuff in the ministry? Just even a ministerial vision. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's kind of reflect a bit on on ministry stuff. I, many of you know, I, I mentioned it, I, I'll, I'll mention it a few more times, but just I, I pastor um, at, a, at a church as well. And, and it's hard doing both. It's hard doing teaching and writing and doing scholar-like stuff and also doing ministry type stuff. Um, however, when I pursued one at the expense of the other, my soul is very unhappy. It's, it's led to kind of an equilibrium kind of in my own pursuits of life. That it's about 30 to 40% church life, pastoral life. And then it's about 50 to 60% academic writing research type life. And so it, it really is kind of a both and that, that I've been able to try to pursue and find great fulfillment in it. Someone asked me early on if I aspire towards like senior pastoral positions or like when you kind of hop into a church, it's like the main preaching pastor. No, not at all. I don't at all. I love the church. I want to pastor. Um, and here's what that move did for me. I wonder how many of us think about ministry as exclusively a platform speaking teaching role. Um, to be in ministry means I have to be teaching all the time. No, um, pastoral ministry, if we can kind of boil it down to two big items, it's the care of souls and the equipping of the saints. It's the care of souls and the equipping of the saints. It's both. What do I mean by care of souls? Um, can I count on you how many, how many times on multiple hands that I've done counseling with people, just weeping, not knowing what to do with their anxieties, not knowing what to do with life? Not knowing what, what to do with X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> but then it's also equipping of the saints. Ephesians 4, 
Right? God gives his church with offices. Those offices help equip. Equip what? Equip the church to do the work of the ministry. Especially for those going into pastoral ministry, um, what, one of the one of the helpful models is I, I I don't think I'll ever be at a big church. That's I think just part of my personality. Um, some people really enjoy bigger churches. I probably won't. I've I've always sort of been at medium or lower uh, smaller churches. That's how that's what I pastored at. But it's because of my vision of pastoral, the pastoral office. As a pastor, you have to know your people. Um, at at the, the, the church right now that, that, we, that I'm pastoring at, we have what's called shepherding groups. Every elder has a list of members that they spiritually care for. So that could consist of as low as 15 people up to 50 people. Um, because as a pastor, you really want to provide shepherding care as well as equipping of the saints to do the ministry. Here's what now this means. I don't have time to run programs, right? I don't, I, there's no way, there is no way. So here's what, here's what I often tell people in our, in our church when they say, well, why don't we do this? Well, why don't we do that? Well, why? I say, do you want to do that? Let me equip you and you go do that. Because often people in the church are wanting pastors or ministry leaders to create frameworks and programs for people to live in. I don't know if that's ministry though. Yes, there is some administration for pastors to do or ministry leaders to do. But if you can boil down the identity of a pastor, it is to equip the saints to do what? For them to do the ministry. And then second, it's the care of souls. That you care for them, that you know uh, the individual needs of the people in your church. Here would be a good litmus test, right? Here would be a good litmus test. How many people are underneath your care right now if you're in ministry? How many people are you directly supervising, so to speak, or have spiritual oversight of? Can you name three spiritual items in their souls? Right, that's hard. That means you have to be so deeply ingrained in their life, so much so that the persons trust you and you're then able to minister the scriptures and the gospel, the beauty of Christ to them. Ministry is so difficult. Can you know three items of concern? It could be happiness, but Let's think of sorrows. Can you name three sorrows of each person that you provide spiritual care to? That's really hard as a, as a ministry person, as a pastor, as a ministry lead. But it does then leave room. There's not a whole lot of time for you then to plan programs. 
we get into the habit of ministry and pastors build frameworks for people to do life in, you may never do care of souls type of stuff. But it's both and. It's both and. Ministry to others is equipping the saints and to care for them, to minister to their souls. Um, I'll be the first to tell you, I go by each year thinking, oh man, I don't know if I was the best pastor. That was really, that was a hard year. Yeah, I, I, I probably let people down. I probably let others down. There's a real sense of pastoral ministry guilt. You have to trust that your identity is in Christ, not in the production of what you do with others. I'll never be able to teach you that. You have to learn that through the wrestling of your own soul with God. Okay, ready to jump into Matthew? We could keep talking about ministry all night. <laughs> yeah, one more thing. Let's talk about one more thing. Sorry. Um, ministry to others can be taxing. So if you're constantly giving and 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 giving, do you ever find time where your soul's in chaos? Or are you so busy that you're never you never have space to think and reflect? Silence and solitude ought to be recovered habits for Protestants. Often people think of that like, no, 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 that, that thing's Catholic. We're not touching that at all. <laughs> no, can I, can, I, can I tell you why? Don't have the Catholic monastery in mind as I'm talking right now. I want you to have the life of Jesus in mind. How many times when reading the Gospels do you see Jesus withdrawing from the multitudes to do what? Rest and pray. Jesus will withdraw two to three times. i sorry, for two to three days and let his disciples go. What does this tell you as a minister? Two things. It tells you to rest and it says your church will be fine for a few days without you. Right? You're not the savior of the church. You're a conduit of God's goodness, yes, but you are not the savior. Could you imagine if I step into the pulpit and I'm your pastor and you knew for the past four weeks that I have not had time to sit down and pray, but man, my sermons were bombing, like hitting the hearts of everybody but you found out that I wasn't sitting down and praying, what would that do to you? I hope you would say, I'm okay with halfway good sermons, knowing that my pastor spent time with the Lord. I, I hope that's what you would say. Otherwise, you're now turning the office of pastoral and preaching into performance. No, 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 you don't want your pastor to perform. He's not a performer. You're not a performer in ministry, but rather, you have got to find times of rest, silence, peace. Here's what I mean by silence. How much scripture am I having you read this term? 
you're reading the Gospels twice, all four of them twice. So you'll be reading scripture this whole time. Okay, so scripture reading is one habit. Let's go ahead and set that aside because we're assuming we're reading scripture. When you do silence and solitude, don't bring your Bible. Don't bring noise. Maybe have a journal, but sort of keep it in your pocket. Ready? Can you sit there for an hour or two? My hunch is, is that you would squirm. My, my hunch is that you would squirm. But, but think of this. I promise you, when you do those moments, count how many scriptures the Lord brings to mind. The scriptures will be with you. This, I don't want to say that this is a distracting moment. This is not a distracting moment, you reading the scriptures. But it's one of the Christian disciplines. So let's now fragment that and say, let's do another discipline. And you'll be shocked at how much scripture actually comes to mind. Don't bring music. Don't bring your phone. Don't bring the scriptures and just sit. Go sit underneath a tree for two hours and just see what happens. Like, honestly, see what happens. In uh, the past four years where this discipline has become far more active in my life, there is never a moment that scriptures are not running through my mind. Here's the hard part. And I think one of, one of the three over here squirmed when I, when I mentioned this. Watch what pops up in your soul. That right there is sort of the Lord meeting you very in a subjective sense and allowing things to bubble up for you to ask for forgiveness on maybe, maybe for you to repent over something or maybe even just some brokenness in your own life that you, you're you, in a very subjective way, right? Feel the subjectiveness as I'm talking. Maybe you're sort of blocking God from healing some moments like in some hurts in your own life. Uh, but I promise you, the scriptures will be with you. Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? Right. God is with you all the time, except for that one hour when you're sitting by yourself. No. Right. No, 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 no. Even in those moments of fright, he will be with you. Jesus would withdraw two to three days at a time. Every time he steps back in, what does he do? Steps back into the life of his disciples or steps back into the crowds to minister. Silence and solitude is not meant to retreat from people. Silence and solitude is a means to find replenishment and communion with God so that you as a minister can step back into the life of the people of God to minister well. I have no one in mind and I have nothing in mind. So please don't hear me say something like, oh, he's thinking of this. No, no, no I promise. If you found out your pastor hasn't prayed for four weeks, but man, his sermons are money. I would be concerned. 
I'd be concerned because that now is a man of God, has not met with God, and his sermons might be resting on his own power. I legitimately want half-baked sermons, but with a man that has met with God. Right? It's okay to maybe, if you have 15 hours of studying, maybe devote seven hours to studying, seven hours to prayer, maybe 10 hours to studying, five hours to prayer. And how many of you are thinking, no, 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 I got to get this thing ready. No. You think the Lord is impressed with your accuracy? No. Not that the Lord needs anything, but the Lord probably just wants to be with you. Work in you. He wants you to rest in him. Okay, Matthew. Now we can jump in. <laughs> Matthew. Many, 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 many readers of the Gospels um, have chosen Matthew as their favorites. This is so testified all throughout um, earliest, uh, especially among the earliest uh, Christian readers. Um, it's, it's the most quoted among second century authors than any other gospel. The, the gospel of Matthew is among the most richest in terms of literary formation. Uh, John is probably the most rich theologically. Uh, but Matthew is just beautiful tapestry. So the goal of right now is to look at or to consider the historical situation of the gospel of Matthew. And I want to teach us kind of what I mean by historical. I'm using this in two senses. Historical in the sense of antiquity or ancient setting. That's what I mean by historical. That's item one. The other one is in terms of critical scholarship. How many of you have ever used a commentary and you open up the front and it's asking kind of these odd history-like questions? It often asks authorship, date, provenance, social setting. What were its first readers like? Right, that right there is what I mean by critical kind of scholarship right there. It's asking critical questions that are related to history. So what we're gonna do here is we won't talk about literary features of Matthew. We won't talk about thematic or theological features of Matthew, but rather we're gonna focus on the background and historical concerns <clears throat> of the Gospel of Matthew. So what, what are we going to uh, kind of cover on it? I want to kind of give us a couple of questions here. What are we going to talk about? I want to talk about authorship. Who wrote the gospel? And I now, I, I probably assume, if I were to say, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, I bet I would get 90% of you in here to say, oh, Matthew did. And, and I'm glad we can do that. But I actually want to show you why we can say that. I want you to have sort of some backing so that you have more confidence. Who, who actually wrote this? What, is, what does that sort of do for us? 
Related to that then is the date. For example, if we say Moses wrote the book, the, the gospel of Matthew, do you see how that doesn't work? Right, because Moses is way back this way, scattered, uh, 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 shifted by, by, by about 1,500 years. But it's a, it's a big gap. So authorship determines, helps to determine dating. We, we generally want to say that a book is written within the lifetime of the, that live author. Now, there are times, so like, for example, let's say, let's say I die tomorrow, but Allison, my wife, wants to publish this. So yes, a, a, an author can write something posthumously, uh, so it's not out of the ordinary that that could happen, but generally our first step is that it's within the, the era of the author when he's alive or she's alive. And then the third one, what's the historical situation of the gospel? So in other words, here is this fancy German term, the Sitzenleben. What is the life setting? What is the social life? So when Matthew's written, what's happening around him in terms of this, this social setting? Okay, let's jump in. History, uh, uh, authorship. So keep in mind when we talk about history or historical arguments, it's different than doing theological arguments different than doing theological arguments. So as we address the authorship question, the subsequent historical sections, I think a methodology is helpful to note at the outset. When you do history, you're trying to give cumulative argument. That's, that's an attempt to do. You're trying to get a, what I mean by cumulative, think of we're standing on top of the hill and we have a snowball. A cumulative argument is we turn it over once, the snowball grows a bit bigger. We turn it over again, the snowball gets bigger. We turn it over again, the snowball gets bigger. But we're not actually covering all the snow. So cumulative is sort of this, we're, we're trying to gather together all that most helpful arguments, but it's not all the arguments, but it, they're all built on one another. Hmm. And I want to kind of use this language, external evidence and internal evidence. External evidence and internal evidence. So with historical arguments here, here's a, here's a note to myself. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that should tell you I'm never satisfied with anything where I'm doing. Like I'm like I am a perfectionist. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. Uh, it's very painful. <laughs> it is. It is very painful. Um, so with historical arguments, the rubric of accuracy. This is gonna this is gonna make us squirm a bit. Okay. So I, I want you to to roll with me a bit. It isn't necessarily right versus wrong. When we talk about historical arguments, what I mean by improbable and uh, improbable and probable. 
language of history is not black and white. It's right, it's wrong, but it's shades of probable, shades of improbable. And so we're gonna do our best to look at limited data and try to speak about what possibly took place. You can tell that that's very different than theology, right? That is very different than theology because we're trying to take limited data and describe something that happened 2000 years ago on the ground floor in Jerusalem. You're gonna tell me we can be definitive? I don't know, like that, that's, that's pretty difficult. So that's why we're speaking in terms of probably that happened versus ah, I don't, that's probably more improbable. What do I mean by external evidence? What do I mean by external evidence? External evidence is information or data that resides outside of the actual book and is about or regarding a particular book. So it will hear the voices of the ancient church and look at manuscript data. Internal evidence is information or data that resides inside of an actual book and is about or regarding the inner contents of a particular book. So it will attend to the voice of the contents of the book. Any questions there? Because this distinction is gonna be really necessary. I want us to be able to, be able to move between those. Yep. Manuscripts. Yep, that would be internal evidence. Yep. Through archaeology, right? Through archaeology, through testimony of Josephus. Um, so when we deal with authorship, what did others say and what's the tradition say versus does the text inside actually tell us? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writes to you. That's internal. That's right. That's an internal category because we're looking inside of the book to help determine what's happening. Where outside of that, we're looking at manuscript data. Does that does manuscript data testify to Pauline authorship? Does the early church receive this book as Pauline? Okay, so let's dive into this. Let's look at some external evidence. And I'm gonna look at two different items. I'm gonna look at manuscript evidences, and I wanna look at the patristic testament. Patristics are what? The church fathers, and it's the first few centuries right after the life of Christ. So in other words, we're going to hear about Papias. We didn't get to finish uh, uh, talking about him last week. 
Papias is highly valuable for the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, and we'll, I'll explain why when I get there. So, manuscript titles. Do any of the early manuscripts give testimony to the authorship of the gospel? This right here, this Greek term is in all caps. Evangelion, gospel, kata, which is a preposition according to Matthion, Matthew. Evangelion, kata, Matthion. So let's ask a couple of questions here. And as we do this, please just raise your hand and stop me. Okay, stop me and say, I, I don't even know what we're talking about right here, okay? Do any of the early manuscripts contain a title with Matthew as an author? How were the earliest manuscripts titled and given attribution? How would the earliest readers of these manuscripts perceive their origin? As you can tell, those are historical questions. So you're almost kind of wondering, how would I even begin answering that? Right? How would I even, how would I even know where to begin and where to start? So with regard to the title, the gospel according to Matthew, really no sure conclusion has been reached. And that's according to Davies and Allison. I almost want to push against that conclusion, and I'll, I'll show why here in a moment. Uh, what, he, what they're getting at is that there's a little bit of inconsistency, and I'm going to show you that there's two or three versions of what the title could look like. That's what, that's what Davies and Allison is talking about. Not necessarily, there's no sure conclusion about the authorship by a title. As of today, Tommy Wasserman has documented that there are 60 registered papyri that contain gospel material that date between the second to the mid fourth century. John has 17 of those manuscripts. Matthew has 13 to 14. Luke has six. Mark has one. That should tell you what was the favored gospel in the early church. John. Mark wasn't. Mark wasn't. It's flip-flop now. This is really important. There are 13 to 14 manuscripts of Matthew that range from the 2nd to the mid-4th century. That's early in terms of manuscript life. That's early. I only want to show you six of some of the earliest because I realized that this is just going to be like, what type of chart am I looking at? Okay. Papyrus one, sort of how these are titled. So when they're found, they're given a title. If it's papyrus, it's going to be this P and it's going to be given a number. That's how we catalog them. Keep in mind, we're still discovering manuscripts, which is just sort of baffling. That's why I said, as of today, this is how many we have. Oh, man, this is like, there's ever a PhD student who wanted to do text criticism. I would send you to Oxford, and I would send you maybe to Cambridge, their library. There are manuscripts sitting in the library 
that are not cataloged. Right. Yes. Time. There's only so much that people can do. Okay, Papyrus 1, look at the date, 3rd century. So let, let me tell you what 3rd century mean. 200 to 299, right? If, if we're going to be generous here, that's about 130 years after the original. That is so close. Look how much material it has. Chapter 1, 1 to 9, verse, also verse 12, also 14 to 20. So that tells us, though, that here's an early manuscript of Matthew that gives weight to a third century set of readings, and this points to an earlier recension, meaning it's come from something before it. We have papyrus. 45, also 3rd century. Look at this one. Papyrus 64 and 67, circa 200. That is so early. We're, we are within two, maybe one generation. Right? That's not a long time from its original. It's not a long time from its original. A couple more, right? Second, third century, second century. Why is second century pretty important? Give me the years. 100 to 199. It's really hard to date with specificity, right? You have to deal with windows. The windows that you deal with are dating of the actual papyrus script or papyrus material handwriting changes over time so that's how you sort of decipher dating but if second century is that that tells us we're one generation removed this whole idea of we don't have the original manuscripts therefore can you really trust the text I, that that tells me that person has never dealt with text criticism they're just looking at numbers and saying, we don't have the original, therefore we can't trust it. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? This is a this is a year, this is a generation removed, most likely copied. So there are, I should push this to the next title, that's my fault. So there are manuscripts with the title Kata Mathaya. And I want to show you this. Look at this. Can you see it? Kata Mathaya. Here's an old manuscript. It's in all caps. This is why I don't want to do text criticism. Could you imagine spending hours on hours trying to read this, translate this, and then reproduce it so others can read it? Oh. We get thanks to God that people do this. It's a big B. Over here. B-I-B-L-O. What does that look like? C. It's an S sound. Biblos. Geneseios. 
the book of the generations. And then look right there so you can see it. I, and then that's like the X right there. With the line over it, the line over it tells you it's the divine name. Yesu Christu. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Tell um, Matthew 1 begins. I want to show you the title though. Look how it was inscripted to us right here. Katamathion. So Katamathion, uh, we have two early manuscripts that read this. We have Codex Sinaiticus, mid fourth century. Codex Vaticanus, mid fourth century, contains nearly all the Bible. Um, the corrected versions. And then there's uncorrected versions. That's why there's one right here. Scribes would come in and just kind of tweak a letter in case a, a misspelling happened. That's how some, some uh, updates would happen. There are a number of manuscripts that have this reading, Aeongelion, Kata, and then look at this just subtle nuance, M-A-T, Theta. Matthion. We have Codex Beza, fifth century, Codex Washington, Washingtoninus, fourth and fifth century. Then we have a number of family groups, the 11th through 15th century. Other gospels have a similar inscription of kata plus the name. So the gospel of Matthew looks similar to the other three uh, uh, gospel-like material. It is possible then that Matthew was an early unanimous attribution among early scribes to place his name on multiple early manuscripts. At least by the fourth century, that is as early as 300 years, maybe 250, 270 years after the life of Christ. And according to Donald Hagner, the inscription of according to Matthew was affixed to the gospel sometime in the second century. According to Martin Hengel, the gospel titles are quite odd and uniform by the second century. This unusual formula of Aeongelion Kata plus name can be properly understood in, in the only in the sense of a name of, the, of an author. And it was never understood by the ancient church any other way. That should give us some confidence that the early church with multiple manuscripts are telling the world that's from Matthew. Because keep in mind, one manuscript is not, is not just in one region. A manuscript could have been used in Rome and then used in Jerusalem and then used in Alexandria. So it's not like one manuscript means they're all in the same region. No, 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 no. These manuscripts are spread out all over the place. Okay, any questions there? Go ahead. Yeah. 
Yep, for sure. Yep, for sure. It's really helpful. Really helpful. It's a really good question. Um, and I and I'm by no means suggesting that you are suggesting something, but it but it does tease out. So could it be that the originals are lost? And then someone is attempting to reduplicate the gospel. Like, let's say you write me a letter. I lose it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what did, okay, what did she, she write me? And then I try to rewrite it. Okay, so let's say hypothetically that's true. Let's say hypothetically that's true. And how do we get over 20 manuscripts by the fourth century with very little difference? And the 20 are not one area. You see how it like implicitly that can't be true then. That's like playing telephone, but with someone in Alexandria, someone in Caesarea, someone in Italy, all within a hundred years. In that world, that would be pretty difficult. That'd be pretty difficult. So unless we're just super skeptical, that's like the great conspiracy that succeeded, you know? But not only would there be 20 manuscripts of Matthew by the end of the fourth century, ish. I would, I would, I would, I want, to, I would want to spend time on this question to give you actual numbers, but I know it hits 20, maybe a little bit over. Different regions <clears throat> with similar and same spellings throughout the 28 chapters. So that would tell you that there, there's not, how did the, like we're in cahoots at that point. Like everyone has bought into the conspiracy. Uh, by second century, what's the reading, uh, what is the percentage of population that can read first and second century? Throw out a number. A little bit higher, but you're in the ballpark. 10. Within Christian community, what is it? It ups to 35 to 40. Why? Somehow Christians loved the book. We loved the book. So that's going to be reading habits. Second is what was the process of scribes? Who, who wrote the book of Romans? Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul did not write the book of Romans. You knew that was going to be a trick question. Flip over to Romans 16. 
Romans 16. Romans 16, someone read for us verse 22. Yikes. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Wait, 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 wait. That right there should tell you about scribal habits early on. You have what's called an amenuensis. What's an amenuensis? Oration and orators is one of the prominent ways of communication. In other words, if I had money, if I had money, I would hire beautiful stenographers, right? That can write legibly, write beautifully. And I'd hire about five of them. They would sit right here. And what would they do? I would be pacing. And I would be counting off, and I'd be reciting, I'd be reciting, and I'd be reciting, and then I'd say, I'm done. Then the five of them would get together and make sure that they had it all correct. We see that practice early on by the second century, and I think we see it at a smaller level, even in the scriptures. I, Tertius, write this to you. Who wrote the book of First Peter? Is it Peter? You know it's a someone's Look look at first Peter. Look at chapter five. Chapter five, verse twelve. Bingo. Silvanus is also Silas. So by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Can we wait a couple of weeks before I answer that? Because it, no, but, but that tells me you're now asking the history question. What is the story of its composition? That is a good question to ask. None of these books just fell out of heaven. Right, there are two religious traditions that do say that. Mormonism and Islam. We don't say that. Our heads are not on the ground. We are not playing the ostrich. We will look at history dead on and say it is altogether messy, but God preserves his people through his word with his scriptures. Is that okay? Fair enough? Okay. Let's keep rolling. Now let's ask this question. Let's look at patristic testimony. Let's listen to the earliest communities that would have received these texts. So another set of external evidence. <clears throat> the testimony of those from early Christianity. 
That is, how did others in the second century onward identify this gospel? So then let's look at the book of, or sorry, let's look at the testimony of Papias. Do I have it in here? No doubt. I have a small article on Papias. I'm just going to highlight it. That's okay. I didn't put it in my notes. That's all right. The earliest, oh, it was in last week's lecture. Totally not a problem. The earliest attestation of Matthew, the tax collector, is from Papias. Papias is a really important figure for early Christianity. Why? He's a disciple of John. We now have a tie back to the eyewitness. Papias is a window. He records the following about Matthew. Matthew collected the oracles in the Hebrews language or the Hebrew language and interpreted them as best he could. So it's been debated what is meant by the Hebrew language. Doesn't mean that the gospel of Matthew was written in Greek to those of the Hebrew language, or does it mean that the gospel of Matthew was originally composed in the Hebrew language? That right there has been debated among scholars. Here's my assessment. If the latter, no Hebrew gospel has ever been discovered, none. And the current Greek of Matthew shows no signs of being a Semitic translation. What we have in the Greek of Matthew doesn't look like it was transposed or, or, or translated from a Hebrew origin. Yet Papias affirms that Matthew is a collector and recorder of Jesus' sayings, traditions. Here's what I think is going on here. He writes it in Greek to those who are Hebrews. And so I think we best can understand this statement. I almost want to retranslate to say to those of the Hebrew language. Let's keep rolling. Second, third century. According to the testimony of Pantanus, the gospel of Matthew was originally from Matthew in the Hebrew language. Pantanus is an early 2nd century Christian philosopher out of Alexandria, Egypt. Both Irenaeus of Leon and Clement of Alexandria in two different geographical locales attest to this Methian tradition. Irenaeus notes that Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. Clement of Alexandria is less inclined to talk about authorship as he is more inclined to talk about the gospel order. Yet, Matthew is among the first composed. The testimony of origin, however, is quite helpful. Although his commentary on Matthew is not extant, we are dependent upon the testimony of others about origin, and Eusebius records the following from Origin's commentary on Matthew. And he writes this, that first was written that according to Matthew, who was once a tax collector, 
but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, who published it for those who from Judaism came to believe, composed as it was in the Hebrew language. So for some reason, these second century authors are still claiming that there's a Hebrew origin. There's nothing to be found. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to the fathers. There's no evidence. Yep. When you say specimen, you mean like your, mm-hmm. like your. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. And then when you say authors, you just mean Yep. Yep. That's good. Thank you for pressing me on vocabulary. Let me let me create a let me create a hypothetical scenario here. Let's go back to the Reformation. Let's talk about the wars that were happening. Let's talk about um, French or German uh, historians of wars that happened. Would we listen to the first generation? after the war, or would we listen to six generations after the war? Would we listen to those 200 years after the war, or would we listen to those 800 years after the war? You can see why a patristic testimony is valuable, but it's not rock solid. So what does this all point to so far? Both the manuscript inscription of Cotamathion and the cumulative evidence of the early Christian testimony point to Matthew, the tax collector, as the author of the first gospel. Although the early tradition is matched with both a Hebrew and Greek version of the gospel, it remains unclear whether it is whether or not this Hebrew form is the gospel of the Hebrews or whether it is the gospel of Matthew in Hebrew. There is no signs, there are no signs in the early use of Matthew that Hebrew, that the Hebrew form of the gospel held sway. There's no evidence. As early as the first century, there is a tradition that identifies the gospel of Matthew with the eyewitness account of the disciple Matthew. I realized that that was a long way of saying Matthew's the author. But you, there's now meat on the bones. That's all that that's meant to do. This one right here. Yep, go ahead. Yep, totally fine. So in other words, is Matthew, their, their original Matthew, was it written in Hebrew to a group of people, or was it in Greek written to Hebrew people? I think the second one, Greek to Hebrew people. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. That is a good question. Can we learn more about Matthew himself? Let's see, who is he? Because that is a good question. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Which would be Latin. 
Right. Yep, that's right. So it would be Latin at the highest. Uh huh. Would that be tax collectors? Because they're kind of like buying out uh -huh. the right. So would, they, right. would it be Latin? Or would it be Not necessarily. There's a hodgepodge. Jesus on the cross speaks what? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's Aramaic. It's Aramaic. But yet every recording of Jesus's words that we have is in what language? Greek with no seemingly influence of a Semitic background. I have a hunch Jesus was multilingual. It's a form of Hebrew, so it's part of a Semitic, Semitic background. So the idea that people would speak multiple languages would be pretty common. Okay, so what about the internal evidence? RT France gives a very good summary. Matthew is not one of the better known of Jesus's first followers. In fact, all that we know about him from the New Testament, he was a tax collector in Capernaum. He was also called Levi, that he was one of the 12 disciples. And at least this seems reasonable that he was a Jew. <laughs> right, that's sort of all we might be able to know about him. Uh, why then is Matthew okay to write the gospel? Bingo. He's an eyewitness. He wrote down what he saw. Okay. The only mention of Matthew in his gospel, Matthew 9, Matthew 10. And it simply just calls him Matthew. <clears throat> he saw a man from a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. He rose up and followed him. Later in Matthew 10, it's the list of the disciples. And he's listed among the 12 as Matthew, the tax collector. So by being a tax collector, we can assume a few items about him. Tax collector must keep records and make up accounts. So his net, he was very literate, reasonably educated. Furthermore, by carrying out his business in Capernaum, he would have been fluent in both Aramaic and Greek. If this is a trade of tax collectors, then he was a person ideally suited as the role of recorder. So it may be to the instant shorthanded notes of Matthew, the secretary, the gospel that we regard as Jesus' teaching. However, being associated as a tax collector was not favorable, certainly not favorable among the religious elites, especially as it relates to Jewish society. Tax collectors were grouped together with the sinners. Tax collectors are not virtuous people. 
How do they make their living? By extorting you. Rome only needs 5%, but we're not going to tell the people that. We're going to tell them 10%. (laughs) Yeah, they're 10%. And so at that point, the tax collector gets to keep any extras that he makes. What would Rome do? Rome just wants a certain amount. Anything extra that tax collector gets. This is interesting. Matthew's also named Levi. Matthew's listed among the 12 disciples in Mark 3 and in Luke 6 and in Acts 1. However, Jesus calls a tax collector to come follow him as one of his disciples. Rather than using the name of Matthew, it's recorded as Levi. In Mark 2, Luke 5, Levi is the tax collector. So because Levi does not incur in any of the disciple lists by Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and because Mark and Luke convey a similar calling of a tax collector in Matthew, it is likely that Matthew and Levi are the same person. But it's only the Gospel of Matthew that refers to himself as Matthew, whereas the Gospel of Mark and Luke refer to him both as Matthew and Levi. It could be that Levi is Matthew's pre-conversion name. It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. One that I've not considered before. I appreciate you asking that. I don't know how common it would be. Yeah, to be fair. But we see name changes quite often, right? What is Peter's two names? Simon, Peter, and Cephas. What is Saul's name? Paul. But it's not his conversion name. I think we often, I think we often think that. We'll talk about that later next year or next uh, next term. It's not Saul the unconverted, Paul the converted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be um, a little bit on the northern end and on the coast. So go to Israel right over here. It's going to be on the northern end of that fog and up near the coast. Oh, yeah, for sure. So let's conclude. We looked at both internal and external. And I realize, okay, I'm the first to kind of just hold my hand up and say, we really spent 30 minutes doing that to come to the conclusion Matthew's the author. Yes. It's okay. Yes. But now you sort of have a backstory to why. How often will you use that? Probably this much. Okay, honestly, this much. But it should give you far more confidence because you're no longer guessing. So let's kind of bring this section to a conclusion. According to the ancient testimony and the scant information within the gospel itself, 
It would be fine to say that the disciple of Matthew is the author of the Gospel of Matthew. But even if later historical evidence proves, like without a shadow of a doubt, that the Gospel of Matthew is not written by Matthew, does it discredit its theological integrity? No. So actually, determining or not determining the author doesn't necessarily affect what we do with the internal contents. But yeah, historically, there's really no reason not to suggest Matthew, but the authority of the gospel still resides on what's inside the gospel and not necessarily who wrote the gospel. But yet it influences it a slight bit. Okay, any questions? Any questions? Yes and yes. If Irenaeus speaks, anyone in France would listen. He'd be the Bishop of France or the Bishop of Lyon. Not a, he's not a scribe, he's a theologian. He would be an early, I'm going to use the word bishop, but don't think of like what bishops are now. So he's a religious man who shepherds the church and writes theological stuff in equipping for the church. Origin? Absolutely. Um, I'm writing my, my book right now that I'm working on is on Cyril of Alexandria. Um, that means nothing in here, but but I, but I, I I'm looking at exegesis. Someone someone writes that if anyone does a study of the uses of scripture in antiquity, you're essentially looking at Origen's influence of all of early Christianity. Origen was deemed a heretic, but and I, I'm I'm a little bit of a defender of Origen. Yes, he was deemed a heretic. He was deemed a heretic by two centuries after his life, multiple times. So imagine being the first generation after receiving all the scriptures, trying to put together a theological vision, and then 200 years of progress goes by, and we look back and be like, Origins Cray, we're going to deem him a heretic. That's what happens. And so I actually think it's not, I, I don't think it's fair. That, that he's deemed a heretic. I think some of the things he says is problematic, but he is the, the most influential, if not second to Augustine. But that is a good question because we do need to wait. Some names are more important than others. Okay, how are we doing? Let's keep rolling. Go ahead, Christine. Yeah, is there any argument for another author other than Matthew? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. But thankfully, Matthew's not debated. When we get into the book of Ephesians, oh yeah. When we get to the book of James, there are five to six options. So yes. When we get to the book of John, yes. Why? Because there are two Johns. So is it John the beloved apostle or is it John the presbyter? 
that we read about in 2 and 3 John. Let's have a two-minute break. Okay, let's roll back into just kind of our final item. Our final item. I just want to give kind of a general date. When was the Gospel of Matthew composed? Um, one of one of the items that I want you to have when when you step into the care of the church or the care of others is it it's not up to us to convince someone of the truthfulness of scripture right that is the work of the spirit part of what our role is is to elucidate for people that which is already made plain right but when it comes to the historical retelling sometimes it's really difficult I don't want Christians to be anti-intellectual. I refuse for that to happen. That means it takes extra work on our end, right, to help others. And I see there is actual reasons for the gospel of Matthew to be accepted by the church, how it was written, why it was written, right? There are reasons why. And so that's what, right, Keep in mind that that's what part of this is. In the forthcoming weeks, we're going to dive into the contents of Matthew. Um, and it's going to be glorious because we'll finally get to a place where you're like, oh, I know, I know what we're doing now. Right. Half of this stuff. Let me let me be more generous. Three quarters of the stuff that we're talking about today. You're just like, uh, what do we do with this? Like, I don't even I don't know if I've even heard of this. And I, I, I know that part of master's work is to actually is to sort of bring you into a world that is sort of bigger than Sunday school, right? It's bigger than collegiate work, right? This is master's level work, right? So I'm trying to pull you into harder and harder and harder stuff. Why? Not so that you can go into the church and wield this like a weapon. No, 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 no. It's for you to step into the life of the church, to look at someone who is struggling with the truthfulness of scripture, and for you to look at them and say, I promise you I've wrestled with this. And, and, and yeah, this is true. The date. I just want to give one line of reasoning. And it's sort of the main one to give you when the gospel of Matthew was written. So the external testimony, again, of the fathers helps us to determine how and when this was written. So if an early figure or an early Christian text shows signs of Matthew, then the gospel of Matthew must antedate such a tradition. In other words, if a book in A.D. 100 quotes Matthew... Matthew can't be older than 100. That's what I mean by antedate, comes before. So I've already mentioned Papias. Can I totally nerd out real quick? Who's heard of the Didache? Anybody? Anybody? The Didache. Beautiful. I have two books on the Didache. You want to know how many people have read them? Three. My mother's one of them. Allie, my wife, might be another. And then my mentor, 
I know reads it because I when I have conversations with him, I can see it on his bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. But the Didache was written in AD 90 to AD 100, and it shows awareness of the Gospel of Matthew. Is it on script? Meaning, oh, no. No. You can Amazon it, buy it for 35 bucks. Do you know how much I see? About a buck fifty. What? Can you believe that? About a buck fifty. Wow. I I don't make anything as an author. Are you kidding me? Okay, I'm gonna look at the testimony of Irenaeus. <clears throat> so Irenaeus is fascinating for a couple of reasons because Irenaeus situates the composition of Matthew around the ministry of Peter and Paul in the early church. He says this. Matthew also issued a, go- uh, a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. Look at this. While Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome. That's pretty interesting. So this tradition identifies Matthew being composed while Peter and Paul are still alive. They die under what uh, what emperor? Nero. When does Nero's reign end? 68 AD. So in other words, Matthew. So in other words, if Nero dies in 68, that means Peter and Paul have to die no later than 67 or 68 which means that a date for Matthew is possibly no later than 66. It's a general date for us. Could be earlier, but most likely no later. So I'm okay dating the Gospel of Matthew anywhere from 64 to 68 A.D. Any questions on how I got there? Any questions on how I got there? Go ahead. I'm just reading. (laughs) I see what you're doing. Okay, any other questions? Any other questions? Just to continue to encourage one another. Find hope in God. Don't find hope in performance. Performance will exhaust you. Performance will absolutely exhaust you. Why? Why will performance exhaust you? Because your successes in life are built upon the praises of another. You know how exhausting that is? Find hope in God. Find hope in God, even in your pursuits of ministry. Otherwise, when you start preaching to 30 people a week, when you start teaching to 15 people a week, when you start maybe teaching to 200, 300 people a week, your success is built upon how many people come up to you and say, man, that was great work. We start using that as the fuel for your success. No, 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 no. 
bring in really closely three, four, five people that you trust, that are not impressed by anything you do, that speak very truthfully to you. They're not trying to get anything out of you, but they're truly a friend in the ministry. Let those voices ring so loud when you teach. The other voices make them very small. I have about four or five. There's a few people in from the church that I pastor that are in here. It's kind of fun. It, it, I'm, I'm really thankful that they're in here. I'm curious to know if they know this. After every sermon that I preach and someone comes up and says, man, that was a really good sermon. Do you know what I say? What do I say? Why? What, like what, what, what was drawn out of that? Like what did the Lord kind of teach you in the moment? You know why I do that? Bingo. It's to say the same scriptures that were just taught, I have to sit under those as well. And when the people of God tell back to you the beauties of the scripture, your soul is still ministered to. I have like three or four mini sermons after every one of my sermons because I'll, I will ask my uh, our people if I ever hear a positive comment, I will say, man, I'd love to know what, like, what did the Lord sort of bring to mind or bear? And as they tell it back to me, I thought, man, that, that was so delightful to hear. Not a word of praise, but it's the gospel back to you. It's the gospel back to you. So let's end this night here. As you pursue ministry, as you pursue ministry, do not perform. Ministry is not performance. And if it's performance, you will build success upon the comments of the people in front of you. And everyone in front of you becomes your judge of affirmation or your judge of failure. You'll sink. You'll sink, brothers and sisters. So you will sink. You will grow so tired. You will grow so fatigued. This is not meant to be universalized. This is not the first closest reading of this text. The baptism of Jesus appears when in the Gospel of Matthew? Where does it appear? Matthew 3. Where does Jesus first appear in ministry? What chapter? The end of four. What does the father tell the son at baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay. I'm going to do tons of allegory real quick. Just be very generous real, real quick with me. Identity of son and daughter secures pleasure. That we are sons and daughters of God means that God has fullness of pleasure in us. Securing our identity there enables Matthew 4 to come to fruition.
the secureness of our identity in God precedes our public ministry. Not the other way around, though, brother and sister, not the other way around. Okay, so on that, let's call it a night.